0: throughout Advent, we have been journeying through this small passage. It's only a few verses, only a few sentences, and yet each week we've gone in depth and looked at it and kind of broken it apart and followed it piece by piece and today we have the conclusion of it and it talks about something to which we bring a lot of our own experience and our culture when we read it so when we are reading those things into a text when we bring them to our reading and our understanding that's called eisegesis that's reading into the text but As maturing disciples, we are called to exegesis. We are called to read out of the text, which means we have to go back and consider the culture and the circumstances under which the text was created. To whom was Jesus talking, and how would they have understood those words? Well consistently through the first weeks of Advent we saw that a lot of these meetings are completely different in our current cultural context than they were in Jesus day nowadays the military doesn't compel us to carry things or follow directions for a mile nowadays we don't have generally people walking up and smacking us across the cheek and if we do that's assault and handled very differently there are a lot of switches that have happened and for the most part We have been benefited and been enriched by those changes as we have grown and understanding even outside the church has grown. But today is a particularly difficult one. Today is one that many Christians, some of which even within my extended family, have wrestled with. Because a lot of times, maybe you are like me, when you first read this, the image that comes to mind is panhandling. I can remember the first time I ever saw anyone panhandle. I was six. My family had temporarily moved to Syracuse, New York, so my father could complete a master's in business administration from Syracuse University as part of his working for the Department of Defense. And we took a trip to New York City. If you're that close, why not? And we took a trip, and the subway was in an entirely different state than it currently is. So after I was traumatized by riding the subway, when we got into the the city, I had never seen people sitting in squalor and asking for money before. I had never experienced that. And I do remember very clearly the sights and the sounds of New York City my first time, both from the subway and from the panhandling. And I remember thinking, why are so many people so hungry and poor here? Why is that? And it was a completely mind-blowing and disconcerting experience for a child. And since then, I have seen a lot of people panhandling. In fact, you can drive into Charlottesville here nearby and you can experience it regularly. They're in the medians and sometimes they come up to the cars. If you go into major cities, you can see it. And I had always been raised, not both by my parents and my extended family, that I'm meant to have a job and be self-sufficient. And so that is something that I have strived very hard to do in my life. And even as you strive for that, sometimes life happens. And this pandemic has really put that into a new frame of reference for me. I have had an incredible transition as I understand the struggles of people now, because not only has the church always been a place where people have been able to turn in their time of need, whether they are looking for food from a food mission like our Grace Grocery, Or I have been a part of churches that had a a program for clothing people or a program for helping people learn English. I've been a part of many different churches that have had many different ministries. And even here at our church in Crozet, we have our benevolence fund so that if people are struggling financially, they can get the help they need. But we often have a little bit of prejudice when we think about that, especially if we have never been in a position where we had to turn around and ask a church for help. And Jesus is reminding us that sometimes you have to look deeper at what's going on. If somebody is willing to come and beg, it's too easy to stand in our shoes and in our place and judge what's going on in there. And the pandemic has taught us that a lot of people, for the first time in their lives, they have been productive, they have been hardworking, they have had jobs and were self-sufficient up until now. But there are so many people whose entire industries have been shut down and will be for months ahead. I can remember having a conversation recently with someone where they said, you know, you're supposed to have savings. Absolutely you are. And most people say that you should have about three months savings. Well, we've been in a pandemic for 10. So even if somebody did have three or six months, twice that worth of savings, it's quite possible that they have run through that. But we also know that a lot of Americans don't have that level of security financially. And so people who were trying to do their very best and were gainfully employed have discovered financial disaster and struggle, the likes of which they could have never fathomed and they've never experienced before. And not only does that affect your mind and it breaks your heart to realize that now you are in some of the same positions that you have seen other people in, but then you have this humbleness as you try to ask for help. And it can be embarrassing and humiliating because that's not how you wanted to be. But life has happened. And the ramifications of the pandemic are not just physical and with sickness and death. They have rocked worlds and changed households. There are people even within our family of faith here in Crozet that have experienced the loss of a job as they stay home to teach children and take care of children with phenomenal physical and developmental needs. There are families that needed childcare and didn't get it, so one of the dual incomes had to stay home and take care of them. There are people that have become full-time caregivers for adults with disabilities or aging and elderly sick adults in their families. And all of that has impacted so that perhaps for the first time, and as they hope for the last time, they have had to ask for help. And Jesus recognizes that that is part of life, is that the day may come when you have to ask for help. It's a very humbling moment. I have never been in the position where I had to ask people for money, or had to ask for food. But I can remember when I became a single parent with a toddler and I can remember having to learn to ask people for help with childcare or help me with making sure that I could manage a schedule with a child and it's humbling because you want to be independent, you want to adult, you want to be mature and capable and then something happens and suddenly you have to choose how you're gonna respond. But I was very fortunate in that I was part of a church where people granted me grace and they didn't take out their presumptions and assumptions about what was going on in my personal life or me or my child. And that kind of loving, gracious response is precisely what Jesus is articulating here. That when you encounter someone, it's too easy to start asking the questions that our culture asks. Perhaps you've had conversations with people that go something like this. Well, you see that guy over there behind the cardboard sign? He should go get a job. Or, you know, maybe that guy over there, he should stop panhandling. And if you give him anything, he's just going to go buy drugs or alcohol or cigarettes. And so you shouldn't give him anything. But the struggle is that Jesus doesn't say, give to anyone who begs from you and make sure that they properly invest in a 401k and don't go off and buy sugar sweets. That's not what Jesus says. And says, Jesus says, you control how you respond. If someone is willing to put themselves in a place and a position of vulnerability and authentically ask you for something, then your response is to be gracious because all of us have received grace from god all of us have been forgiven for things that were unforgivable we have been loved even when we were unlovable and all of us have turned around and we have sinned away that grace we have continued to do some of the very same things we asked the forgiveness for in the first place all of us have received blessings and benefits from other human beings and then we have failed to be perfect we have all made mistakes we have drifted into the darkness we have wandered from the path we have gone back to the very same sins that were hurting ourselves and others before but God still gives us grace God doesn't cut us off and go I gave you grace one time and you sinned instead God continually gives us grace hoping that maybe the second time the third time the hundredth time we will finally start to make the shift And so God continually pours out what we need and what we ask for. You ask for forgiveness, it is yours. You want to be loved by the Almighty God, you are loved. You want to experience what it is to have a family that surrounds you and supports you through your hard times and celebrates with you through the joys, then God has given you the body of Christ. God continues to give those things, even though all of us fall short of God's glory and sin, sometimes willfully and repeatedly. And so it is not our job to go behind and make sure. Now, if I have the ability to give somebody food, I will give them food if they're hungry. Or if I have the ability to really meet their need, then I try to. But sometimes it's like kindness and talking about Jesus. You are giving a gift and entrusting that you are scattering the seed. That very same theme that our gathering liturgy talked about, that we are scattering seeds And some of those will yield thanksgivings overflowing for God. And some of those will simply be people trying to stop their stomachs from growling and make their pain go away for a little while. But if more and more of us who bear Christ in the world continue to pour out those blessings, then all of that is working in the heart, as is God. And then we entrust that work will be done. But the hardest part for us as Christians, especially if we are pretty well off and independent, is for us to step out of that position of judging and instead embrace the experience that is being presented before us. That's a hard lesson that I learned firsthand Back when I was in seminary, so I was in my late 20s, and one of the things my seminary required was that we did a cross-cultural trip. And when I found out that my senior year, my third year of seminary, that there would be a cross-cultural trip to India, I was in. My undergraduate studies are in non-Christian religions, so getting to go to the seedbed, the foundation, and the flourishing of Hinduism was high on my bucket list. And we prepared. We had readings to do. We had classes that we took. We We packed and unpacked. We got malaria pills. We got all kinds of immunizations and vaccines. And one of the things that they told us as we were preparing was don't take food and give it to the local people. Don't do that. One, you don't want to try to travel 24 hours in an airplane and then give food to people. But two, that's not very helpful in some cases, legal. And the other thing they said is that One of the things that you'll see is that you'll really want to give something to the children. They said, if you want to take something to give to the children, don't take a bunch of toys, but give them school supplies. Well, Okay, that sounds fun. I mean, I'm sure if I handed my child a pencil box full of school supplies, he would be ecstatic instead of getting a PlayStation. But here we were in India, and a lot of these children enjoyed going to school. And so my friends and I that were going decided that we wouldn't just take number two Ticonderoga pencils. There's nothing fun and exciting about an orange number two pencil. Instead, we decided that we would buy fun pencils with cool toppers, and we bought little erasers that were in fun shapes and everything. And so we took, of course, some flamboyant pencils and stuff. Why wouldn't we? So we took those and we had pretty quickly encountered children. My group stood out like a sore thumb. We looked like the United Nations traveling around southern India. I mean, there were uh, very few Caucasians like myself. There were a lot of African-Americans. There were a lot of Africans. There were uh, a woman who identified herself as a Latina. We had a Hispanic man from Cuba. We had Koreans and Korean-Americans. We looked out of place. So when we would walk around, people would notice us and they would come and talk to us. And then one day, we had a little bit of time for us to explore. So my two friends that I was traveling with, one is from Korea and the other is Korean American and his spouse. The three of us made quite an unlikely trio traveling around Bangalore on the coast of southern India. We were out and we, as we were walking down the block, a young boy came up to us and he was gorgeous. He was a beautiful child, had a huge smile and sparkling eyes and he didn't speak English. He was speaking to us in the local dialect. And so we, we kind of fumbled around and we got him one of our cool pencils and we gave it to him and he was very excited and he was trying to show his gratitude to us. And then he quickly dashed away. And so we said, oh, you know, you're welcome. And then we continued walking down the street. Well, by the time we turned the corner at the next block, there was a little boy and about 23 of his friends were now with him. And we immediately kind of stopped and went, oh my goodness, I don't know that we have enough (laughs) to give all these kids these things. But what we had failed to understand when we first saw them was that he didn't go find a horde of children so that they could pilfer things from foreigners. He had actually gone to the local field on the other side of the block where the children were playing cricket. And he had gathered them because one of the older children spoke English. And as they all gathered around us, the older child that spoke English started telling us what the kids' questions were. They weren't asking us for money, they weren't asking us for food, or even asking us for more pencils and erasers. They wanted to ask us who we were and where did we come from. One wanted to know if we knew P. Diddy. And they had questions. They wanted to have a conversation. They wanted an experience. And that was one of the things that really struck me that night as we were kind of debriefing about what we had experienced is that sometimes we think that we're here to be the Savior. We're here to be the one to give to other people because we have been blessed and we have been self-sufficient and we have achieved material wealth and possessions. But those kids didn't want those things from us. Instead, they wanted to know who we were. They wanted to hear our story. They wanted to tell us their story, who they were. And that transformed how I look at it when someone is willing to step out of their comfort zone and come up and ask a question. There have been too many times in my ministry where I have answered a phone and it is somebody who for the first time in their life is having to ask for help. And instead of trying to make judgments based upon the words that they use or their accent or the way they frame their questions or their grammar, what I've learned is that you're giving an opportunity to another person to preserve their dignity. You have the opportunity to talk to them in such a way and receive their request so that they learn that there is a place where they are loved and valued rather than simply a task or a problem to be fixed that they are a human being of sacred worth and our response to people is practically the essence of the gospel All of us would like to think that if the nativity were to happen again today, if Christ were to come back as a child, and that's not how the Bible says Jesus is coming back, but if he were to be born today here in the United States and and his parents came to our home, we would love to think that we would give them the master suite. We would make for them our best food. We would make sure that they were comfortable, that we would show them radical hospitality because the king of kings had now come into our home. But we don't respond the same way to those that could possibly be bearing Christ to us. Rarely do we respond because more often than not, it is a cultural bias and a prejudice against people who are in a position of distress. One of the most beautiful things that I have experienced in the pandemic was when I took the opportunity to be radically honest with you and tell you that for the first time in my life, I too was struggling not with finances, not with putting food on the table for my child or finding a job, but with my mental health. And it was a risk. It was being vulnerable. But the outpouring, the response, the support, the care and the love that I have received from the body of Christ has been incredible. And now I know that that's the response that I need to have when someone is being vulnerable with me, and telling me that they are hungry or they are unemployed and that they're feeling pretty hopeless and they're just at the point where they have nothing left in their power, no willpower than to sit and beg. Are we not those that have turned to God countless times and begged for God's mercy, begged for God's love, begged that God would help us be something more than how we are today? We are those that find it okay to beg from God But when someone turns and begs from us, do we show them God? Or do we show them a cultural bias? Do we show them a mindset that is forged from all kinds of experiences, but not necessarily the desire to experience Christ in that moment, in that exchange, in that relationship? I would love to think that if I went back to Bangalore today, I could find that young man, the one who wanted to have an experience, who had been given something for free, and yet that wasn't what he wanted. What he really wanted was to be known and to know. I would love to think that I could recognize that smile. Sure, it would be in an older form, because that was back in January of 2008. But the chances are that the child that stood before me that day, the child that found his friends, the child that looked for someone that could bridge the language gap, That child is probably like me, has grown up and seen a myriad of experiences and has had the opportunity to become a little bit more snarky and sarcastic, a little jaded. And the chances are that he and I might not recognize each other anymore. I certainly have a lot shorter hair now. But when I think about what Christ is offering us, Christ is offering us an opportunity to have encounters and experiences and relationships that personify What he was professing here. Our Lord and Savior didn't stay in the manger. He grew up to be a 30-something. And his three years of earthly ministry are completely typified by an itinerant poor man. He wandered around. So maybe it would be easier for us if his parents showed up and he was still in utero and then Mary gave birth to him in our house. But what if he showed up at the age of 30 or 31, and he showed up not wearing a white robe and a gorgeous blue or red sash, but he showed up in dingy clothing? He showed up with sandals and feet so caked with mud and dirt that we couldn't even find the ties to untie his sandals? What if he showed up with skin that isn't the color that we've been accustomed to seeing? What if he showed up speaking a language that we don't understand or speak? What if he showed up with cultural practices that seemed bizarre and alien to us? What if he didn't show up by himself but came with his requisite 12 and some additional male and female hangers on? What if he showed up with this entire contingent of people who were living on the generosity and mercy of people? Would we respond the same way? It's a struggle that every Christian finds. Now, Jesus is probably not going to show up at my door this afternoon or yours. But chances are, before you and I take our last breath, that we are going to see another human being of sacred worth, another beloved child of God. And maybe they're sitting in squalor on a city corner. Maybe they're standing in a median in our beloved city of Charlottesville. Maybe they are somewhere else, and they have the gall to come up and ask us for help. Are we going to choose to see the Christ in them? Are we going to choose to respond to them the way we would love to hope that we would respond to Jesus? He lived his life doing what he had to do preaching and teaching sharing the mystery and the hope of the gospel helping to heal those that were broken both in body and mind and spirit and sharing the presence of god emmanuel and some people were so touched and moved by that that they said can we offer you a place to sleep can we Offer you some food. Can we help you in some way? And his response was, if you want to, yes. Absolutely. Because it wasn't just his mouth. There were many mouths to feed. There were many people that needed kindness and compassion. And so as hard as it is for us to look at another person and go, well, that's not Jesus. Perhaps it's not. But maybe it's James and John, the son of Zebedee. Maybe it's Mary Magdalene. Maybe it is another person whose faith and whose witness and presence not only help to perpetuate the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but help to give us a fuller understanding of what the gospel message really is. And just maybe that person, that human being that we see, our response to them is an opportunity for them to grow and experience God's love and to have an encounter that will remind us who we are and what we do. Because my greatest hope is that even if I never get to see that young man in Bangalore ever again, that the day will come when he and I get to settle down at perhaps the first meal in the kingdom to come, at a table that has a place for every person, a table that has more than enough food for every hungry mouth, and a place where everyone there is loved, forgiven, and adored. And perhaps that's where I'll have the opportunity to meet him. But I also worry that perhaps that will be the first time where I meet the people that I judged on the corner, that I meet the people that I refused to help when they were willing to beg, or that I looked at them and thought, you're just going to buy more alcohol, instead of seeing a child of God who was broken and in great need, and out of my abundance, I was stingy. Maybe at those moments, God will allow me to experience the kind of radical grace and forgiveness that I denied them. So may you and I not live our lives having to fear those encounters in the kingdom to come. May we begin to live our lives by being generous with what we have, reminded that every gift to another person is truly an experience and an encounter. Not only do we get the opportunity to show them the Christ that's been nurtured and growing in our hearts since Christmas, but we get to see the Christ that is in them. Maybe the one that they don't recognize is there yet. Maybe the one that has been so beaten down and overridden by the pain and the suffering that they experience in this world. Maybe that Christ will finally get to stand up and shine once more because of how we respond them so when we look back at a passage spoken by our Lord and Savior from almost 2,000 years ago perhaps what we're really hearing is I want you to stop living as the world lives and I want you to start loving as I have loved you I want you to be gracious I want you to be giving because you have never asked for anything that I haven't heard you received you and responded and that's the legacy Of Christmas that Christ didn't stay in the manger he grew into the adult that the world needed him to be he became the Savior that we are still thankful that he is and now he is sending us into the world to be a vessel of that same goodness and grace may we take our rightful place in being compassionate merciful and kind because God has always been the same to us may it be so